Welcome to your Active Tech Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at the AI Act and how it could lead at the so-called Brussels effect. For an overview on all things technology related in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is Euractive's Tech Brief Podcast. Today I'm joined by Marcus Underyank, Head of Policy at the Center for Governance of AI, and by Charlotte Sigman, Pre-Doctoral Research Fellow in Economics at the Oxford University. Hello both. Hi. Hi. So uh, you have recently published a study on the AI Act and how the EU is trying to set a global standard for this emerging technology. So there is a quite a wide debate uh, in academia and among jurists about what is called the Brussels effect. Could you start by giving us a definition of this concept and why it is so important? So the Brussels effect of AI refers to EU regulation influencing the research, development, deployment of AI outside the EU's border. There are two kinds of Brussels effects. A de facto Brussels effect occurs when companies sell EU-compliant products in non-EU jurisdictions without those jurisdictions requiring it. So when the EU introduces new rules, multinational companies face two decisions. First, they must decide whether to remain in the EU market and new regulation might reduce the market size or profit margins to make it profitable to stay in the EU market. And second, firms, once they stay in the EU market, must decide whether to comply with the new regulation internationally or offer two different products, an EU-compliant product and a non-EU-compliant product. And we use the term differentiation to refer to um, that offering of different products for different jurisdictions. And when firms choose non-differentiation, a de facto Brussels effect occurred. What are the conditions that make such non-differentiation more likely? That is, they increase the profits of non-differentiation. First, the EU has relatively favorable market properties. So the market for AI-based products is large and serviced by large multinational firms. And secondly, the EU's AI regulation is likely to be more stringent than regulation passed in other jurisdictions. This is also necessary for a Brussels effect. Third, the EU has high regulatory capacity. So the EU's ability to produce well-crafted regulation makes it less cumbersome to comply with, and that reduces the costs of non-differentiation. Supply and demand is also relatively unresponsive, that is, we also call inelastic, to AI regulation. Compliance with EU AI rules may raise the costs or decrease the quality of AI products. If demand were too elastic in response to that, non-differentiation, that is a de facto Brussels effect, is unlikely to happen. If EU consumption can move out of the EU, then a Brussels effect is also less likely. And 
Lastly, another condition for a de facto Brussels effect is that the costs of differentiation are high. The cost of differentiation we define as the cost of producing an EU-compliant product for the EU and a non-EU-compliant product for the non-EU market compared to just producing a non-EU-compliant product globally. And because for many AI products, the regulation might require changes early on in the technology stack, differentiating compliance requires more duplication. And that means that the costs of differentiation are higher. This makes it more likely that non-differentiation, a de facto Brussels effect, is happening. A de jure Brussels effect occurs when EU regulation influences regulation adopted by other jurisdictions outside the EU. There are different possible channels which make that more likely. So first, countries facing similar regulatory challenges and pressures as the EU and um, perceiving the EU to have sufficient regulatory expertise might copy the EU's AI regime. Secondly, once the EU has already adopted their regulation, there are reduced costs associated for, for other jurisdictions and their companies to lobby and then adopt similar regulation. Thirdly, the EU may actively incentivize the adoption of EU-like regulations, for instance, through trade rules. All of these factors make a de jure Brussels effect more likely. Thanks, Charlotte. Uh, lots of elements in there. Um, I found it quite interesting that you said that uh, EU, uh, EU rules are usually well written and, and therefore less uh, cumbersome. I, I'm sure uh, many people um, would object to that. Um, but it, it is clear that companies are making a cost-benefit analysis and, and, and thinking um, deeply whether they need to differentiate their products or not. But the AI Act is a very complex um, piece of legislation um, which encompasses all uh, potential AI products. So, Marcus, um, looking at these requirements uh, of the AI regulation, what are the most likely to be adopted by, by businesses internationally? We have um, uh, a lot, large part of the report focuses basically on, on these kinds of questions. So we, uh, we do this work of, of sort of that, that Charlotte just did of, of sort of going through what sort of makes it the case that we might see a Brussels effect. Um, uh, and then we spend a lot of the report then trying to look at the specific requirements, the specific rules uh, in the AI Act uh, and try to make predictions based on that. Of sort of where what might we be more likely to see uh, to see a um, both a de facto Brussels effect and a de jure effect. Uh, I'll focus specifically on the uh, on the de facto side of things, and then I guess another thing to note at the start is just that these are uh, these are predictions. Um, we the the, the these laws um, uh, this legislation hasn't been passed yet, um, and so we'll see as as it sort of gets uh, fully negotiated, passed, put into force, and, and sort of companies have a have a chance to respond, and then we'll. Uh, we'll we'll sort of go back and we'll see how how well we we did, uh, but I think at the very we, least uh, we won't hold it against you, Marcus. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, so I'll start by going through what we think is going to happen with what you what are termed high risk systems in the AI Act. Um, this is sort of where we think that sort of some of the strongest um, cases or some of the, the sort of strongest reasons uh, to see uh, to make predictions that we might see a de facto effect uh, occurs. Um, so. 
we, we split this up into thinking about the application or sort of the industry domain and then the sort of requirement domain. So if we fo focus firstly on the sort of application domain or sort of the industry domain, um, one set of uh, high-risk systems uh, that we think seem likely to see a de facto effect are um, domains that are already covered by uh, EU product safety regulation, uh, at least some of those, those domains. Um, and so one, one in particular that seems likely is uh, medical devices. Um, and um, the thought there is something like uh, for, for medical devices, uh, the market is very, very uh, sort of international. Um, the, the producers of this technology, they, they, they supply it to a large portion of the, uh, of the world. It's a fairly concentrated market on the, uh, on the supply side. Um, and then so that means that there's a small number of sort of uh, uh, international corporations uh, that sort of are in the position where they need to make this differentiation decision. Um, there's also a decent uh, sort of high consumption in the EU of, of these technologies. Um, and then uh, it's also, we also expect it to be the case that there's sort of high cost of differentiation. So if I'm developing a medical technology product, um, then I'm going to go through a whole long uh, process uh, of making sure that my product is sort of compliant with the requirements of all of the jurisdictions where I want to sell it. Uh, and most likely this sort of whole R&D process is very, very expensive. Uh, and so most likely I'm going to try to make sure that my, I can produce one product that will be sort of compliant all over the place. And that, that, that allows me to sort of do one set of um, just one set of studies, for example, uh, of these, these technologies and then be able to sort of um, offer them uh, globally. Um, we also think that maybe we'll see, see a de facto effect when it comes to some, some of these worker management systems. Um, and we might also see it when it comes to uh, AIs used in, in legal technology, if, if people think that sort of um, systems that are compliant with EU requirements are going to be particularly sort of trustworthy. Um, and then, uh, and then there, there are a few others that we also discuss in the, in the report. Um, you might also ask what, what sort of requirements seem more, more likely to uh, produce a de facto effect for, for these high-risk systems. Um, I think one, one uh, in particular might be that um, sort of internal company systems or changes to that. So for example, these requirements around having adequate risk management systems or post-market monitoring, uh, you could imagine that those uh, might see a Brussels effect. Um, so for example, if you sort of, you set up this whole new system uh, or you sort, of, you sort of adjust your existing risk management systems, uh, you could imagine that that's mainly a sort of, uh, it could be the case that that's mainly a fixed cost um, that, you'd, um, that you'd put in place. And if that's the case, then it's sort of, the logic is that it's sort of less expensive or not that expensive to then sort of roll that out uh, globally, or at least uh, beyond the, uh, the EU borders. There might also be some sort of indirect effects here, where if you have these enhanced sort of risk management procedures and you find some problem in your product on the EU market, um, then I think it seems pretty plausible that you might see uh, similar issues in your, in your product in other markets, uh, which might then sort of uh, make you um, liable to, uh, to make changes uh, to that product in, in those other markets as well. Um, we also think it seems plausible that requirements on sort of accuracy, robustness, and perhaps cybersecurity of the AI systems uh, is sort of are requirements that seem particularly likely to see a Brussels effect um, because they might require you to make changes quite deep down in your in your model. Like for example, if you need to sort of retrain uh, your model on um, using new procedures or using new data or something like this. Um, if that's the case, then um, we imagine that sort of um, when you've done that retraining, you might as well uh, sort of uh, send out this, this sort of more powerful, uh, perhaps more accurate model uh, globally as well. And I guess the other side of the coin would be which are the requirements that are least likely to be adopted internationally and why? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So if we again, if we think about these high risk systems, um, 
we we sort of list out a few reasons that we think that where we think that it's sort of less likely that you see this. So one sort of big swath is sort of where the industry or or sort of compliance within this industry is already sort of regionalized. Um, so, for example, a lot of the, the sort of majority of the high risk uses uh, of AI that's outlined in the AI Act's sort of Annex 3, um, they concern sort of government uses of AI. Um, and so those sort of don't seem like they lend themselves to there being sort of multinational corporations uh, that produce a product that is getting used all over the place. Uh, and so that, that's, a, that's a case where sort of it seems harder to sort of get one of these sort of de facto effects off the ground. Um, another case is sort of where compliance with the requirement does not require early forking. Um, so this is what I was kind of referring to earlier, where if it's the case that I can um, I can be compliant with a requirement by just making some kind of surface level change to my system, um, then I might be much more incentivized to choose differentiation, offering uh, different products in the EU and, and elsewhere. Um, so say it's the case that, for example, we have these requirements about human oversight. And so to some extent that uh, those requirements will presumably make it the case that there has to be a, a human who oversees the outputs of the model. Um, but that seems like the kind of thing that sort of just happens at the end of your, of your process, uh, the, at the end of your, uh, of your sort of uh, tech stack, so to speak. And so in that situation, uh, I might as well sort of uh, in, in other countries, I can just have the exact same model, uh, but I just don't have that last step, or at least I don't have the sort of the same amount of human oversight, for example. Uh, and so that would also undermine a, a Brussels effect. Uh, or a de facto Brussels effect. Another one would be if sort of the additional cost of compliance with EU regulation abroad is really, really large. Um, once compliant, once you've sort of had compliance for the EU product. Um, so this could be the case, yeah, for example, with this, um, with this oversight, uh, this sort of human oversight. And then sort of a fourth one is that um, another big factor is the extent to which, uh, and maybe one of the most, most important factors um, is sort of the extent to which being compliant with these EU regulations um, are going to make your product seem better, um, seem more trustworthy, seem more uh, like something that consumers will will want or will want to buy um, than uh, than they would have been otherwise. Um, if that's a big effect, if there's sort of sort of a perceived uh, product quality boost outside of the EU, and uh, then I think the the case in favor of there being a de facto effect is uh, is much stronger. Um, so this is similar to sort of with, with GDPR, there were, were a number of companies who came out afterwards and, and would say they, they sort of would offer sort of a GDPR compliant product uh, globally. And then they would you know, proudly tell their con consumers that we, we sort of provide you with um, these high privacy protections all over the world, uh, wherever you are. Um, and if we might see, see similar things happening in the, in the AI case as well. Speaking of um, trust and trustworthiness, um, I was wondering, Charlotte, what is your view on how the EU might sort of normalize the prohibition of certain practices? I mean, uh, of course, the, the, the proposal is still a moving target, but we know for certain that certain things will be there at the end, like the social scoring prohibition, for example. Um, what is your view on this? In some, I think uh, we believe that the de facto Brussels effect tends to be rather unlikely for prohibited practices and a de jure Brussels effect seems more likely, but also here we remain uncertain or it's much harder to gather data or evidence about this. So why is a de facto Brussels effect for prohibitions unlikely? The regulation is simply removing products from the EU market. So there is no rather 
greater change to the kind of technology stack or production processes of the companies. However, there are a couple of reasons for a de facto Brussels effect of such prohibitions. That is, the kind of prohibitions have an effect on, on what the consumers can buy outside the EU. And that might be first because some products that engage in prohibited uses can be adjusted to stay clear of these prohibited uses. And in such cases, there's a possibility of a de facto Brussels effect. So it might be advantageous to remain in the EU market, make the necessary changes to your product so that it is not prohibited anymore, and then apply those changes globally. And that might be likely with the prohibitions on manipulation, for instance, subliminal techniques that could produce a Brussels effect if recommendation algorithms used by social media companies, for instance, risk being classified as manipulative. And so should language similar to the Commission's proposal of the EU AI Act, so the first draft, make it into the final text of the EU AI Act, though that seems far from likely, as Luca, you just mentioned, then companies are likely to put a lot of effort into ensuring that their systems are not considered manipulative. And because these changes might be early on in the production process, that might potentially cause a de facto Brussels effect. In addition, prohibitions in the EU could change consumer preferences abroad. So the EU is kind of exporting the narrative that um, yes, these, these use cases of AI are um, yeah, dangerous or undemocratic or not trustworthy, and that changes the market demand outside the EU. And that is potentially likely for social scoring and real-time biometric identification system used by law enforcement agents. And we can observe that phenomenon that consumer preferences change for past EU product safety regulation, perhaps uh, food safety regulation. So that's it about the de facto Brussels effect. We think that a de jure Brussels effect for such prohibitions is more likely than the de facto one. And a de jure Brussels effect of such prohibitions would occur if the EU exports its narrative of trustworthiness, uh, etc. And that makes it more likely that other governments see the need to forbid uh, such systems as well, or other consumers outside the EU request their governments to forbid these systems. Marcus, let's move to the other uh, hot topic of the AI debate, which is general purpose AI. Again, we don't know where the text will land on that, but uh, do you see uh, Brussels uh, sort of setting the international standard uh, for, for as far as these large uh, AI models are concerned? There's a few different ways in which uh, this regulation could sort of, um, yeah, touch or, or sort of affect these, these general purpose uh, systems. Um, and so one, there's this whole debate about the extent to which this, this regulation should sort of specifically um, have sort of general purpose systems, i.e. systems that can be used for, for several tasks uh, or multi many, many tasks. Um, that those systems should be sort of a, a regulatory target in, in the AI Act. Um, I think 
if if that's the case, then then I think it's uh, I think it's fairly likely that we will see some kind of um, de facto effect, uh, at the very least for for some of the some of the biggest and some of the most sort of important of these models. Uh, so there's this sort of uh, this idea of sort of um, or this sort of class of models that people have started to talk about somewhat recently called uh, called foundation models. Uh, maybe in the past we would call them something like base models. So these are sort of one uh, big model. Oftentimes it's sort of been, been pre-trained or it's been sort of trained on a very, very large corpus of data. Uh, and it can make sort of, it can do some some very general tasks. So for example, it can sort of, um, you give it a prompt and then it can sort of finish, uh, sort of continue to write text that sort of makes sense given that prompt. Um, so over time, we might expect that these kinds of models become more and more um, sort of important in the sort of AI industry. That's sort of oftentimes what it will look like to deploy an AI model uh, in some in some domain is you sort of take a foundation model and then you adapt it to um, to this context, uh, or sort of you you add certain filters or you do what what people call fine tuning of this model um, to that other other context. Um, if that's the case um, for these kinds of models, uh, if general purpose systems, uh, and that would then be sort of foundation models as well. Um, if they, they are a regulatory tar target, I think it's reasonably likely that we will see a de facto effect um, just because uh, you will have these incentives, uh, at least for, for the requirements that will require changes um, sort of deep in this in this tech stack that might require you to sort of retrain your model, for example. Um, but then I think it's also somewhat likely that we will see similar effects even if the regulation itself doesn't include um, um, I think it's somewhat likely that we will still see a uh, some kinds of de facto effect, even if um, the regulation doesn't have general purpose systems as a regulatory target. Um, and so um, this would be the case because if we if we are in this uh, in this sort of situation that I that I described earlier, where a lot of the sort of um, a lot of the models that are being deployed in the real world, if those models are based on a foundation model. Um, there's a bunch of things that will need to be changed or might need to be adapted in the foundation model um, for the sort of uh, the provider or sort of the uh, the actor that sort of deploys this uh, deploys a certain model in, in on the EU market uh, for them to be compliant with the with the requirements. Uh, and so, in some sense, I expect there to be sort of contractual arrangements that sort of um, push um, the sort of uh, they push the sort of obligations up the the sort of production chain uh, such that the provider of the foundation model makes certain changes to the model to be able to tell their customers that oh, okay it's it is the case that we have made certain changes to our model um, uh, such that you can be compliant with for example the requirements of, around accuracy or uh, maybe they they provide sort of the 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 provider or the deployer of the model with sufficient information such that they can sort of um, make sure that they uh, can uh, can verify their their compliance with with the EU requirements, um, and yeah, I think this will be likely be sort of a, a, an, an important debate and and sort of uh, likely to be sort of one of the one of the more important choices in um, sort of in, in the remaining debate around the around the AI Act. And so I guess I guess there the sort of the main the main question for me is the extent to which um, do we end up with a, a better regulatory system if these kinds of obligations um, are sort of pushed up the the production chain uh, or the supply chain via these kinds of contractual arrangements that I that I mentioned, or is it better to just uh, put some of these obligations directly on the um, the provider of the general purpose or the foundation model? Let's speak more about this uh, de jure effect. So the idea that uh, the EU regulation would influence other jurisdictions. Charlotte already mentioned that uh, there are some 
factors that could drive this. So the idea, the perception from other governments that they would need similar rules or, or even the request from consumer, uh, consumers directly to have similar um, regulation. But what can make the AI a truly uh, successful standard setter and drive this sort of international uptake? Yes, so let me proceed by first kind of going through these like four reasons or four channels for the Deirdre Brussels effect um, again and to discuss kind of their prospects or possibilities in turn. And then at the end, I will make some final predictions about how the Deirdre Brussels effect of AI may may fold out. So first, foreign jurisdictions could adopt a blueprint voluntarily. We call this the blueprint channel. And it will likely be the most influential version of the de jure Brussels effect, as the EU is one of the first movers and is responding to regulatory pressures, which are also felt elsewhere. So there's a decent chance that other jurisdictions, in particular liberal democracies, will prohibit some of the same systems as the EU. And as I just said, that in in response to your earlier question, that really depends on uh, whether the EU is able to kind of export or will export its its narrative surrounding AI. In addition, smaller jurisdictions tend to be influenced by EU conformity assessments and the EU product safety standards. So we might also expect that the Jura Brussels effect in the case of AI product safety standards or the high risk requirements specifically. Second, the EU may promote their blueprint through multilateral agreements or mutual recognition agreements, the case of product safety. And we think that this might be the second most likely channel, um, especially likely for high risk requirements, for instance, in the discussions in the ESO uh, or other international negotiations. However, it is difficult to know something about the EU's bargaining power as a preference outlier in these international negotiations. And third, a de facto Brussels effect can help cause a de jure Brussels effect. So, for example, multinational companies may lobby their governments outside the EU to adopt regulations similar to the EU. If other governments don't adopt such stringent regulations similar to the EU, then the multinational companies who have to conform to EU rules, at least for the EU market, are at a disadvantage compared to their national competitors. And the national competitors might only be in a specific country, like only operating in Australia or the US uh, or India. And this de facto to de jure channel may have happened for EU privacy protection in the last years. Once the GDPR was passed and implemented in the EU, several tech companies started arguing that the US needed stronger privacy protection. And that was exactly, that might have been because of the de facto Brussels effect leading to a de jure Brussels effect. However, it is uncertain how successful such lobby efforts have been and how successful they would be in the case of AI. There's a fourth reason for a de jure Brussels effect. That is, a de jure Brussels effect can happen by conditionality. Another jurisdiction incorporates the EU blueprint because external incentives provided by the EU, such as trade requirements or treaties, encourage it. 
We remain unsure about the extent of such a conditionality channel in the case of the EU AI Act. So in sum, where and what kind of de jure Brussels effect is likely? Uh, I think that a de jure Brussels effect is more likely for China than for the US. That is because China has chosen to adopt many EU-inspired laws in the past. And for the US, if a de jure Brussels effect occurs, it is most likely via the state level, and then the state level inf might influence the, the federal level. I also think that a de jure Brussels effect is particularly likely for jurisdictions that have a lot of close trade relationships with the EU. They might face incentives to make sure that their regulation is at least compatible with the EU regulation, though that does not mean that it's identical or at, as stringent as the EU regulation. And lastly, as I already said, I think that this blueprint channel is the most likely. And so a de jure Brussels effect really hinges on whether EU norms and EU framings of AI technology will diffuse or will be exported uh, to other world regions. Very interesting that you consider China more likely to follow the EU path than the US. Um, also considering that uh, Beijing has been um, taking its own um, very ambitious uh, digital agenda uh, recently. Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's a I think that's a good point. So, so I think that the things that pushes pushes against that claim one is one is that uh, sort of yeah, there's been a recent regulation in in China on on some AI products, um, and then I think another thing that pushes against it is that it seems it seems un very unlikely. A lot a lot of what the AI Act does is it um, sort of imposes requirements on how the government can use AI systems. That seems very unlikely to uh, to see diffusion to um, to China. Just to wrap up, um, how likely do you think is the AI Act to shape the future of these emerging technology? Yeah, so roughly to sum up, I think we, we firstly, we expect sort of multinational companies uh, to offer some EU compliant AI products outside of the EU. So, so we're expected, expecting to see some um, de facto effect. This it seems particularly to be the case for, for high risk uh, products, but we also, we also talked about uh, prohibitions. And then in the report, we also talk about some of these transparency obligations. Um, and so, i.e., in, in certain cases, we expect it to be sort of profitable for these companies to offer one product globally um, that is EU compliant, um, or at least um, to have that be the case for certain requirements uh, of, the, uh, of the EU AI Act. Uh, we may also see sort of de jure effects, um, but yeah, it's very difficult to, uh, to tell now. Um, and I think it seems perhaps most likely for jurisdictions that share sort of uh, EU values in some sense, uh, or that have sort of significant trade relations with the EU. Um, in this latter case, I think the, the sort of the primary pressure that you will see is sort of you'll see pressure in favor of making sure that your um, your regulation is, is compatible with EU regulation. And I think what this means in practice is that you um, the sort of um, the requirements that are imposed on uh, on companies uh, or on on sort of producers of of AI systems, uh, those are likely to be it's it's likely to be important to make sure that those are have sort of compatibility with other other jurisdictions. I think it seems um, less likely that you'll see diffusion of the sort of the EU's way of sort of carving up the space of what kinds of AI systems uh, need to have certain to have these kinds of requirements. Uh, imposed on each other, um, but I think it seems likely that sort of maybe countries like the UK and Canada um, they might face incentives to make sure that their products are um, 
have have sort of a similar um, a similar requirements, if not sort of a similar way of sort of um, deciding what systems are high risk and need to have these additional requirements uh, imposed on them. And so I guess one, one way to sort of summarize or sum this up is that sort of the regulation might be particularly important in offering sort of the first and most influential sort of operationalization uh, of any, any jurisdiction uh, of sort of what it means to develop and deploy trustworthy or sort of human-centered uh, AI. And that might be sort of the biggest effect uh, from, this, from this regulation globally. Charlotte Sigman is pre-doctoral research fellow at the Oxford University. Marcus Ander Young is head of policy at the Center for the Governance of AI. Thank you both. Thank you so much, Luca. Thank you. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy development in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Evie Chiori. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.